Well, hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the What's Next podcast. I am your host, Tiffany Bova, uh, and I'm thrilled to welcome Dr. Gabriella Rosen Kellerman to the show today. She has served as Chief Product Officer and Chief Information Officer at BetterUp, Head of BetterUp Labs, and Founding CEO of LifeLink, and an advisor to healthcare, coaching, and behavior change technology companies. I just want to say she's absolutely really smart, <laughs> trained in psychiatry at fMRI Research. She holds an MD with honors from Mount Sinai School of Medicine and a BA sum cum laude from Harvard University. Like I could only aspire to, I went to a state school. So let's just say that I, I am impressed. Um, her new book, which came out in January called Tomorrow Mind is her first, but I'm thrilled to talk to her about it today. Welcome to the show, Gabriella. Thank you so much. Thanks for having me and thanks for your very kind words. <laughs> You're welcome. Well, we always start off this show with something I call bullish and bearish. Uh, nothing too painful. Bullish, you're for it. Bearish, you're against it. Are you ready? I'm ready. Okay, the first one. Time travel. Bullish or bearish? Bullish. I think so too. Okay, I'm going to segue and go against my rules. Where, where would you time travel to? Past or future? Um, for me, a past first, because I'm fascinated by hunter-gatherers, you know, it comes through in the book, but that's the world that our bodies and our brains are designed for. So the more we can understand about what that was like, the more we understand who we are today. Okay. Great answer. All right. Next one. Three-day work week, bullish or bearish? Three-day bearish. Okay. Four-day four day neutral. Five-day... <laughs> I think if we can pull it, pull off four day, I think great. Um, I think there's, there's some stuff we need to learn. Three day sounds a little too short to me. And, and I say that both from productivity standpoint, but also from like, it should feel good to work, you know, like we should, we should want to spend time doing our work and I'd rather have a world of work that we're excited to engage in and be contributing to than optimize for a world where it's like, oh, I have to do three whole days of work this week. All right. Well, that I, I like the way that you frame that. And the last one, bullish or bearish, flying taxis. Bullish. Why not? <laughs> Get me there faster. <laughs> I, I just worry about the traffic. Like who's going to be paying attention to what's happening totally. in the air? Worries me a little totally. bit. Totally. What does a shoulder look like in an, in an air highway is something I wonder. <laughs> do you do go, go below the highway as a shoulder or is it which dement, which is it vertical, horizontal? That's See? what I think about. See, it's, it's all in the how. The, the what sounds <laughs> fascinating, it's in the how. All right, well, let's dig in. I just want to start at the high level. I know you did this with, uh, with a co-author, and, and um, tell me a little bit about what landed you to on, on Tomorrow Mind. Yeah, so my co-author is Marty Seligman from UPenn, uh, founder of Positive Psychology and other movements within psychology. And we came together to look at the problems of thriving as they are expressed particularly for us in this world of work today, which is so different, so unusual from anything that we've ever experienced before. And to say, what can behavioral science offer us in terms of adapting to this world of work and applying some of the tools that Marty, over the course of his very self celebrated career has has led the development of. And so we've spent about six years across UPenn with Marty and BetterUp Labs, which I was privileged to get to start at the CEO's request in 2017, doing a ton of experimental research, studying different interventions, survey-based 
research, and then also looking at the anonymized data from the hundreds of thousands of people who get BetterUp's coaching in all industries around the world, every, every language, every time zone, looking at what they're working on, what their challenges are, and then also when they do build certain skills, what changes does that bring for them in the outcomes they see personally and professionally? Well, I, I feel like, you know, over the last, well, it's like, let's call it kind of pre-pandemic, through pandemic, kind of as we come out the other side of it, it feels to me anyway, like we've had three different experiences as employees, like kind of pre-pandemic, it might've been, ah, you know, like you were just saying at the three-day work week, like, I'm not that excited about going to work, but you know, it is what it is. Or you may have people who loved what they did. Then kind of the pandemic hit and all of a sudden it was like this wave of anxiety and this uncertainty. And now I, I tend to hear when I'm you know out and about that on the other side of it, that that uncertainty and anxiety about the future has kind of maintained itself, right? And, and any thoughts around kind of coming into where we were and what, what you thought was happening and obviously the catalyst being the pandemic and now coming out the other side of it? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Coming out the other side of it, we're also dealing with this economic downturn. And in the midst of an economic downturn, business priorities start to overwhelm, uh, you know, the, these bigger picture questions of how well-being fuels performance, which is a huge part of what we're been invested in in trying to demonstrate. And there was a natural buy-in to that in the midst of the lockdown. And that has shifted. Now we're seeing that there's sort of a, a bit of pulling back on this idea of investing in employee well-being holistically, pulling back on this expanded employer value proposition that did really start to show up in big ways during the pandemic. I don't think we'll ever go back to exactly the way it was before the pandemic. You know, I think that there were some lessons that were learned and demonstrated in data in, in, in very severe ways. But I think that the reality is that the there's still a lot of very, very senior leaders who have been in place for decades, you know, and, and didn't come up in the world in an era of the pandemic where these lessons were so clear and obvious. And when the going gets tough, we go to our foxholes and our safe places and our, our older behaviors. I think we see some of that retrenchment happening today. Well, you know, the word I hear most often amongst executives when I'm talking about how are you responding to everything that's going on, right? The economic downturn on the heels of supply chain issues, obviously a global pandemic and everything that that uncovered is uh, resiliency. Like I hear that tossed around a lot. Like we're trying to become more resilient. We're building a more hardened infrastructure and organizational structure. We're trying to, you know, be uh, more thoughtful in what and how we do things. And where I get challenged is if I use that word or if someone uses that word, I like to come back and go, what does resiliency mm, mean to great. you? Right. Because great. it may mean something totally different across the board, especially when you go globally. So, so what are you seeing, Gabriela? Yeah, absolutely. So on the one hand, I'm thrilled that resilience is the word of the day because I think it's the right word. I think it opens up the space for really important conversations about what that means, why it works so well. On the other hand, like you, I see it being used in lots of different ways. And to me, the most fundamental stage for resilience is the individual, right? It's our mindsets and our behaviors. And organizations are as resilient as their people are. Yes, systems matter, processes 
justices matter, we tend to over-rotate on those things versus on individuals. And we have now the data to say, if you want a resilient outcome as an individual, as an organization, here are five key drivers, and we name them five skills we name in our book, cognitive agility, emotional regulation, optimism, self-efficacy, and self-compassion. When people have those skills in high levels, they see resilient outcomes. When organizations have people who have those skills in high levels, they see higher return on assets. They see higher year-over-year growth. So we know that it all ladders up to exactly the outcomes that we're looking for. And it's, it's at this point very granular to be able to say these are the skills and here's each of them can be built and developed. To me, that's the missing piece in any conversation about organizational resilience is how are you arming each individual to have those skills and in particular your leaders because their resilience or lack thereof ripples out. Yeah. And I posted something on LinkedIn a couple of weeks ago about the difference between kind of hard skills and soft skills, you know, it worked from Susan David was, was sort of the origin of the image. Right. And then I shared it on, and, and literally like, I think it was like viewed 200,000 times and there was like hundreds of comments and like everybody had an opinion, right. About these soft skills. And some of those five, you just mentioned, you know, people might argue that falls into the soft skill camp. And I feel like people feel uncomfortable when you start talking about those soft skills. So it's, well, how do I teach it? And, you know, empathy gets tossed around a lot, right? Like how do I teach empathy as a quote unquote soft skill? Do you, do you worry that some of these, of the five you just mentioned that people may view, well, let me ask, do you view that as a hard skill or a soft skill? I guess let me let me back up. Yeah. So in in the like traditional definitions of those things, and I do hate those terms. It's a soft skill. Yeah, and and, and that was sort of some of the comment as well. I don't like the terms, right? And so people trying to kind of rename them. And so if it is not a hard skill, <laughs> whatever. What, what do you prefer besides soft? So I think some of the rebranding people have tried to do with soft skills is like meta skills enduring deeply human capabilities. I tend to talk about it as psychological capabilities that we need for our careers versus technical skills that will expire. So you can invest in those capabilities, uh, you know, really at any age, and you will see the benefits for the rest of your career versus knowing that other things you're going to invest in may be actually irrelevant by the time you gain that skill. So if we go back to those, you know, human driven skills, once we get into the conversation about how do you potentially teach it and train it, the following question is, well, then how do I measure it? Right. Because mm-hmm. especially today, oh, yeah. as you know, budgets are tightening up and and people are reevaluating where they're spending money. And you said some of this is going, we're going backwards on some of the things we started to invest in around employee and right, mm-hmm. the well-being and that this, one of these things or these things included in that well-being. Mm-hmm. Um, how do you respond to the, if I teach it, how do I measure it? Yeah. So this is uh, highly measurable. We only know we can build it because we can measure it. There's different resilience scales out there. They all, all of the good ones that are highly validated, they all really overlap with each other. So as long as you're using something with true scientific validation, a resilience scale, you're, you're probably in good shape. You can measure it for individuals. You can ladder that up to teams. The fact that you can then break down from resilience, these five different drivers means you can have like the double click, the triple click on your data dashboard 
of resilience for the organization. And ultimately, the best way to think about it is as your your leading indicator of the performance potential for your people. So the lagging indicator would be your revenue performance, or the lagging indicator would be voluntary attrition, or low job satisfaction, or low employer NPS, right? But the leading indicators are these psychological capabilities that let us do well and change. One thing I also just want to mention is that we think of resilience as sort of a lack of a negative, like we can get through this without harm. But there is at the far end of resilience, there is the ability to grow stronger through challenge, which is called anti-fragility. So think of this as you could have three companies. They're all going through a major challenge in the market. One of them is going to be not resilient and going to fold. One of them is going to be resilient and make it through okay. And the other one's going to be anti-fragile and actually grow stronger because of that moment. What we want to be able to do is get our people not just to lack of harm, but to super performance. Uh, you know, imagine what that opens up as a competitive advantage. Absolutely. I mean, I'm a firm believer that the competitive advantage any company has is rooted in its people. What you do with them, how you treat them, you know, what what sort of motivates them, you know, how they feel that what they do matters. And I mean, I, I think it's highly important, right? Because you could argue what what is a company? It is really just a group of people, right? That are all trying to do something, whatever that something is. And I always joke that what is a company? They make stuff, they sell stuff. It's kind of, what more is it than that? I try, I'm a simple gal, right? To try to make it as basic as possible so we don't overcomplicate what we're talking about. Now, one of the other anchors uh, in the book that I really wanted to dig into is creativity. And in the time travel, you sort of made an inference to the, I'd like to go back in time to understand that whole hunter-gatherer. I'd love for you to sort of share that power of why that's important and how it leads us or led you to this conversation around creativity. Yeah. So uh, every major think tank that studies kind of future of work trends will tell you that our jobs are becoming more creative, that we all need to be more innovative in our day-to-day. And that's there's two major forces for that. So one is that automation is taking over the more rote aspects of our work, which to me is great. It means we have less boring work to do. Let's let the computers do it for us. And then the other is this constant level of disruption and uncertainty and, and volatility and when that's it's happening at that pace, we do need to rely on everyone in the company, including maybe especially the front lines, to be able to face novel solutions, face novel problems, and respond with novel solutions. And that requires innovation. We have come now out of a few hundred years, if not a couple of millennia, of an era where people thought creativity was more of a specialized skill, and that reflects the industrial world of work and maybe sort of later agricultural worlds of work. But in the beginning, when we were hunter-gatherers, it seems that our work was, in fact, creative because every new environment we got to, we had to figure out how to make use of all of the resources available. There was also a generalist nature to what we were doing as hunter-gatherers in the sense that we could one day be gathering berries. Another day there was a big kill brought back from the hunt and we all had to break down the carcass. And and so that lends itself to a more agile, more creative way of being. We also just know fundamentally that our creativity is what made our species successful over other 
hominid species. We were able to adapt to a wider range of climates, make use of a wider range of resources. And we got so creative, we innovated right out of our hunter-gatherer way of life, right? So all of that is to say that hardwired in our brains is this creative capability. And there's all kinds of beautiful evidence of that. We've culturally moved away from this idea of everyone is creative, but we really need to return to that and help those people who, for whatever reason, don't think of themselves as creative, understand what that is and what it means, why they are, in fact, highly creative, and how to lean into expressing that. Well, you know, your research found a really interesting link between creativity and what we were just talking about, resiliency. Say more about that. Yeah, I love that you brought that up. So in uh, the early days of the pandemic, we had just been doing a ton of work around creativity. And then the pandemic hit and we're like, oh, we really need to do some focused work on resilience right now. And we had a few populations we were studying where we we decided let's we may as well look at the relationship here because we have so much data on both of these topics on all of these people. And what we found is that higher levels of resilience is highly correlated with higher quality creative output, greater innovation at the team level, even at the organizational level. And that can be broken down into, you know, again, these leading indicators and these lagging indicators. And the mechanism for that that we've discovered, which is maybe not mind-boggling, but it's nice to see it play out in the data, is that there's a lot of parts of the creative process that require us to keep going even when things are tough. Maybe people don't like our idea. Maybe we try something and it just doesn't work the way that we thought it would. How do you get back up and keep going and keep pushing through those barriers with the conviction in your position, you know, adapting, learning to the new information coming in? There are these romantic ideas about creative geniuses who sort of wake up one day and they just have it all figured out in their mind. But all of the great innovations that, you know, have have gotten us to where we are, are as a society have taken iteration, have taken months, if not years, if not decades, if not centuries to arrive at. And that is is an act of resilience at some level. And I would say, I, I think I'm right on this, that not all creativity is created equal and not all innovation is created equal, but there are different kinds of creativity, right? It's not like you're going to wake up one day and be Ives from Apple. Right? It's like, mm-hmm. like you, you need that kind of, or Steve Jobs, right? Do you need that kind mm-hmm. of creativity or are there other levels of creativity? Yeah. So we identify four different types of creativity. The creativity defined as anything that's novel, surprising, and useful. Classic term for all of that is divergent, but that's not as helpful as breaking it down into different forms of divergent thinking. So integration is one, which is the ability to see connections between things that seem very different. Splitting is another, which is taking a unitary whole and figuring out how it can be more usefully divided into parts. Figure ground reversal is the third, which is where we realize that the problem that we need to focus on is not in the foreground, but in the background. And we may have been literally missing the forest for the trees, you know, depending on on the challenge we're trying to solve. And then the last one is distal, which is more along the lines of Ives and that, you know, creative genius who just thinks of things that are so far removed from the here and now that a big part of the work to be done is A, communicating it clearly, and then B, there's there's commercial impact where you have to actually train the market to come along with you in that vision so you don't miss the, the commercial opportunity for being ahead of your time. 
you know, I always bring up the kind of jobs to be done concept because I think it helps people understand, right? That hunter gatherer job has not changed over time, right? The solution is what has changed and what's now available to us. So something like chat GPT shows up, you go, well, the job didn't change, but now do we have to go do all this research? Do we have to comb through thousands of pages of something or millions of pages of something? Or can we let something, right? The solution that has now changed really deliver those things for us. But I also worry that we lose a little bit of the human side of things if we start to lean too far um, into technology, especially around things like creativity and innovation. Would you agree with that or... Or not. Yeah. So, you know, I think ChatGPT has been a really rich input to this whole conversation because there are a lot of lines of thought that have said technology will never be as creative as human beings. And then all of a sudden there's ChatGPT and, you know, what does that mean for us? I think we are still learning the limits of what ChatGPT can, can and can't do. And part of what's at stake there is understanding, okay, well, what are the pieces of the work that ChatGPT can take over and what are the parts that it still are uniquely human, uniquely reserved for us. Uh, in the book, we actually give an example around ChatGPT, which is what does it mean for the journalist and the reporter? And if you think about investigative journalism, you know, where you really have to pull these threads of things that seem very separate um, and make connections as an integrator, you know, one of those four types of, of creativity, that's an area that journalists can be leaning into as one example, right? How do you form these nuanced perspectives? and still surprising perspectives based on associations of your lived experience, based on having deep conversations with individuals, you know, accessing different forms of data, different types of data, different slices of data that can't just be combed off of the internet. So, you know, for those people who are listening, who may be individual contributors, maybe first-time managers, even in the, in the beginning stages of, of their management or leadership career, what do you hope that tomorrow mind really opens up for those people. Because sometimes when I have guests on, right, and I bump into people to listen to the podcast, they're like, oh, you know, I really love this guest, but feels like that's so far away from me from a career perspective, right? I'm not right there where I can start doing some of the things that I learned about, but I'm super excited about when I'm able to do it. And so how do you, um, what would you say, right, uh, for tomorrow mind, bringing it down to the everyday individual contributor? Totally. So two things. The first and maybe the most important is we're really trying to help people understand that the career ahead of us is not about any one major change. It's not about the pandemic or the recession or a current round of layoffs as painful and challenging as those things are. Those are just examples in a very, 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 very long list of change and challenge ahead of us. And therefore, the work to be done is about preparing for the entire body of challenges rather than reactively responding to any individual one. So that is where we want people to invest is proactively in these skills that help us with, again, that forest of change rather than any individual tree. The second piece is this bottom line on what are the skills to invest in. So if you're trying to prepare for this forest of change, there's five skills the acronym's PRISM, and the book spends the bulk of the time going through them. P is prospection, R is resilience, I is innovation, S is social connection, and M is mattering. We go through them in, in great detail. But if you have the time and the bandwidth to really invest in your skills with this view of career longevity ahead of you, 
those are the five to focus on. Well, I think that makes us all a little more hopeful, right? It's digestible. I'm a firm believer in carving out, you know, a certain amount of time either every day or every week on personal development. If you don't develop and, you know, invest in yourself, why would anybody else? And so, you know, maybe uh, the framework of PRISM is a great way to say, I'm going to invest in each of these over time and learn as much as I can, not only about what it is in each of those categories, but where am I on my own journey through those? And, and I think that if you can do that, you know, at the end of so much coming at us, right, where we started so much change that there will be, you know, hope for the future career or hope for the future of where your business is going. And I'm going to guess what the answer is, but I'll ask you, and, you know, do you feel hopeful about the future, knowing all the things you know as, um, you know, a, a doctor and a scientist, right, and someone who's very data focused? What are you seeing and what are you thinking about that? I am super hopeful about the future. I think we're a tremendously adaptive species and we have now behavioral science understanding of our mind itself to help us with this journey. We're in early stages still, in my opinion, of behavioral science, but we're already seeing the benefits it can yield to help us adapt to increasingly challenging circumstances of our own creation. Well, Dr. Gabriella, this has been fantastic. I could keep going because I'm just fascinated about how, you know, the human mind is really the keeper of all of these things. If we can get almost get out of our own way, <laughs> that um, we can open ourselves up to embrace some of this. So tell us how uh, people can keep in touch with you, your work. Um, obviously, please go pick up a copy of Tomorrow Mind. It's been out since January. So how else can they keep in touch with you? Yeah, thank you so much for that question. I have a website, GabriellaRosenKellerman.com, with all the links to places to buy the book and also ways to reach me by email directly. I also am a pretty regular poster on LinkedIn and would love to connect with you all there or on Instagram. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I hope everybody enjoyed this conversation. I know I did, and I will look forward to seeing all the amazing work that you put out this year, Gabriella. So thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much. 